I, I have like an ongoing, you have a pretty nice setup. I have an ongoing struggle with how to get my audio right with my videos. Mm -mm. That's partially because like I'm switching different things and I'm always in a different area when I yeah. record. Um, but, but, but yeah, generally this is where I record. I feel like the audio is the audio reverb or something is okay, but mm. maybe I'm, maybe people are just used to my crappy audio. Yeah, I think the audio in your videos is fine. Like, like it's gotten better. I th I think like when I go, especially when I go revisit some of your old older videos, like like the way it is now, I think I, I think it's great. But I think it's yeah, it's pretty difficult to control like your environment and like making sure there's like no audio leak and things like that. Yeah, but we are in a pretty good like we live in a pretty good time now where we can have like USB mics and things like that. I think like even as early as as recent as 10 years ago you would have to have like a, a mixer and then like have the xlr connections and i, I don't know if that if you even know those terms but yeah it's, it's so much simpler now yeah 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 like i actually like i know so little by audio and there's some people in my discord or they email me and they're like audio engineers mm -hmm. and i feel like i'm insulting them i'm insulting their <laughs> life's work when i <laughs> present my audio the way I do and I and I go like I have no idea I don't know I, I don't know I need this this is not what I do <laughs> so uh, they, they just like kind of like hey can I see your setup and then you just like tell them it is what I have yeah I plug I plug I plug this thing into my into my computer and then I talk <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like yeah, I I mean I I do this podcast completely for fun and like yeah, so there's no funding, right? So like I I just thought about like how to have like um you know the most affordable, most streamlined setup, and I it's not professional or anything, so I think I'm good, but like uh yeah, I think I'm I'm not sure if like your YouTube channel is your main job. I I never actually asked you that, right? Um, it's not. I have a real job. Um, real, the, real the YouTube channel is the side chain. Yeah, yeah. I, have a, I have a real capital R, capital J, capital J. real job. Real job, um, yeah. So this, this, I, I would probably say the, the YouTube channel, I, I, I certainly enjoy it much more. I wish it was my real job. All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. And today we have a special guest and his name is John from the YouTube channel Asianometry. Yeah, I'm super excited that uh, you're here today, John. Like, thanks for coming on to the show today. I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So yeah, like I watch a lot of your channel content. Sometimes it's like, yeah, it's pretty much like a podcast, really. Like, because you do a lot of like explanations on like, uh, you know, business, technology and history things, right? Yeah. And it's, it's really like quite pleasant to just like watch while I like, like do my stretch stretching or I'm just like relaxing for a cup of tea or coffee, things like that. Yeah. So like, how did you get this channel started, Asianometry? Oh gosh, I've talked about the founding story a lot. Mm. Let me see if I can think of something kind of a more interesting angle. So I I was uh, I worked in the Silicon Valley. I've been working in the Silicon Valley for about nine to ten years, mm. first in finance, then in tech, and then tech mm. marketing. 
And then after the last startup I worked at, it I kind of I left. I didn't even know if I left. It was just like the company just stopped talking to me, and I felt <laughs> he goes to I was you. really yeah. They just stopped talking to me, and I was I was really burnt out. I had been working I think eighteen hour days, and like I felt like I could I was never like adequate. Like if you weren't working for Google, not even like if you weren't working for like Facebook, Google, like some of the sexy companies like Uber. At mm-hmm. that time, it was it was Uber. Uber was the sexy company. Like then, like you weren't really kind of you weren't like nobody really cared about you. It was like your first like you, when you introduce yourself, you you don't really say what's not as important as your name is like the company you're associated with. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty Asian thing. Like ironically, it's like oh yeah yeah like your parents would be like when they talk to their friends. Luckily, my parents have no friends. Like, um, <laughs> when they talk to their friends, they're like, they're like, oh, um, my, my, you son. Know, my child went to Harvard. <laughs> or my child works at Uber, at Google. Um, they're very proud of it. But they don't even, like, your name doesn't matter. You're an abstract trophy. It's fun. It's great. <laughs> now, I'm just imagining your parents speaking in a British accent. But, yeah. Yeah. Oh but, yeah, but... They, they do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so you're in the valley, and then uh, you came to Taiwan. Yeah, I, I actually like when I um, I stopped working, and then I kind of bummed around Silicon Valley for a while for about a year because hmm. I had enough savings. I didn't really want to go back to work. I didn't want to work. Uh, funny enough, I was just like, I don't want to work anymore. I'm just gonna. I did enough freelance work to pay for rent and like Starbucks coffee, and then I just kind of didn't do anything else. Right. Um, and then after about nine months, and I was like, I'm going to go to. I decided I was going to go to Asia. I was going to go to Asia for a while. Yeah. Um, I wanted to live in a place where I felt that um, I wanted to see other people that look like me on the street. Mm. Mm. So um, I recruited for companies in Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Seoul, uh, though I couldn't speak Korean. I can't speak Chinese either. Uh, Shanghai and Taiwan, Taipei. Yeah. Um, I got offers from all four. And um, Singapore and Hong Kong gave me probably the the worst in terms of salary. Mm, Wow. Okay. Taipei gave me the best. uh, That was it. I apologize on behalf of my country. We deserve you. We should have given you better, but yeah. Okay, so yeah, Taipei. Like, was it also um, a tech-based uh, job? Yeah. Um, it was very. It's a very unique company. It was a very unique company, and like, mm. um, I don't think like if I was if it was like a normal company. Like, I was very fortunate because to stumble across this company because most of the time a Taiwanese company doesn't need a native English speaker. Like they're not going to like a lot of uh, Taiwanese now are kind of educated in America or yeah. they have like excellent English speaking. Like I've I've met like a lot of people um, who can speak English like 95 percent of the way there. That so I was very fortunate, very fortunate. My preference was to go to Singapore. I, I swear it's not even <laughs> it's not even I'm not I'm not trying to, 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 to kiss to kiss butt. I, I really wanted to go to Singapore. I had more friends there. I really liked just being there. I've been there five times and like, uh, it's very tragic, very yeah. tragic. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, you don't have to defend yourself. Like I know you were like, you're pretty interested in Singapore because you have like at least like good, a good, like seven, eight videos 
on just the economy of Singapore and like and quite well researched stuff like I would say because you go back to even like the 80s and things like that like many things that Singaporeans don't even know about like the way the country our country was industrialized and things like that yeah that sort of story has always been really interesting to me Singapore is like a really sort of like I guess we can talk more about that later but like Singapore is like a really fascinating place in terms of like history really fascinating place in terms of kind of like mm. their development their ethos their attitudes and like um so so i i i i really saw them i think a lot of people saw it as like you know disneyland with the death penalty but i kind of wanted mm. to look beneath kind of that i wanted to see kind of what is working and i think what i've learned when making content about singapore is that they seem to really appreciate fairness and yeah. they seem to really appreciate when you know i think every country is interested when someone else from an outsider does content about them but singapore especially so and i think that's um and they're they're very fair about it it's, it's very they're very kind yeah i i guess um because of the some of the topics you covered the one that comes to mind is the one on uh neptune orient lines uh singapore's <laughs> uh previous uh national shipper and um uh, people were mad you know like when they it got sold because you know it's it's built as you know like a national company and you get sold right so it's kind of humiliating and many people can name the ceo of uh nol from, that ran it from 2011 to 2017. Uh, we can talk about that later but he's a ceo of something else that also went through uh st strikingly similar corporate restructuring <laughs> yeah yeah but 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 man yeah um because part of my job um my day job my real job capital R, capital J, uh, is uh, I try to get my company to like invest more resources into Singapore. So mm. I always have to kind of paint it in a very like positive light. <laughs> so it, it's very refreshing for me to kind of see like uh, both sides of the story. Yeah, and uh, like um, and some parts of uh, some people might call it failures, but um, uh, the industries that don't exist in really exist in Singapore right now, like like why don't they exist anymore? Like um, it's pretty interesting to know like I, I i didn't know where to look right to find out all these stories and that's why i also like was quite curious to like how you how you do your research and like um who edits it and who check fact checks it and yeah how it actually gets into a video i think when i start out when uh when you start out on a topic when you start out on a like a piece of content a doc uh, any video i think it's very rare that a video ends up the way you start it Mm. Um, when I, I had started, I heard about NOL through, through the comments on my video on Chartered. So mm. actually the video on right. Chartered was the first big hit I had in a lot, like the really first, like first big hit. It was kind of my breakthrough. And, um, the NOL, they, and then a lot of people came to me and said, Hey, look, you know, you should talk about this company called Neptune Orient lines. And it's really interesting and stuff like that. So, so I had a vague idea of kind of what you want, what I wanted to kind of say. You start out by looking at the Wikipedia. And for me, looking at the Wikipedia is very important because if you have, you come into the Wikipedia and you look at that and it's, and it's like 20 pages long, there's the sections are well-written, the story flows and all that. Like, you know, you're going to have a really hard time making a video. Like I, I wouldn't be able to do Asianometry in like World War II, right? Because that's, those those that's a book like basically right. that's a very well read written book but the nol video the nol wikipedia 
was was very sparse, very scarce. Like not a lot yeah. of stuff happens. Mm. So I knew I had like an opportunity to kind of really contribute something. So basically what you do is um, you go to, you basically hit, uh, you, you, you go through the books, uh, yep. paper books if you can. Uh, not really wasn't the case with NOL, but just you read, you collect a bunch of contemporary articles, a lot of web archive, a lot of kind of um, uh, just news of the time that's contemporary. And you start as, as you can read things over and over again, it starts to repeat itself. And by the time it starts repeating itself at around the 8th, 12th, 15th article piece of reference. So I actually list my references on the Patreon and like, you can see like the NOL video has like 25 references, 20, 30 references. Mm -hmm. And you sort of kind of pitch together kind of how that whole thing's going to set up. And mm -hmm. NOL was a very unique one in that it kind of ended up the way I kind of thought it was going to be. Like it was just very kind of like an interest. It was a story that didn't really change a lot. Um, there's other videos that you start out with an idea and it totally, it's a totally different video by the end of it. How how do you even uh, get inspired to start a YouTube channel like and in the format that it is like because uh, you explain you basically tell a story of like uh, what happened to uh, this country with regard to a certain a certain industry right and um, was history always uh, your your favorite subject in school or you do decide that you know there's a lack of this kind of content on YouTube and like you wanted to do it? Well, no and yes. Like uh, when I was in school, my favorite subject was math. Mm -hmm. um, so Asianometry. <laughs> very, yeah, trigonometry, <laughs> Asianometry. Yeah. I took a, that was basically how it's, the name came out. Yeah. But, um, you know, leading up to my, my, you know, traveling to Taiwan, you know, I read all these history books about World War II and all that. And I thought to myself, like, I'm really interested in history. I'm really interested in kind of telling the story of, you know, this part of, you know, this part of the world that not a lot of people talk about. So I started out just making these kind of videos on the interesting parts of the stories I wanted to hear. So I wasn't, I didn't want to hear backstory. I didn't want to hear, you know, this guy was born, like this interesting guy or this the semi-interesting historical figure was born i wanted to hear about like macro stuff yeah like big trends in history why did things work out why did things not work out like you know they say that success is the you know, confluence of opportunity and like the individual right what was the mm -hmm. opportunity that created the you know a success mm -hmm. and what was the individual that succeeded and what was special about them so mm -hmm. that for me was something i thought was um I was really interested in and I started out making content on history, which I think actually, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really do anything for you in terms of like views. Not a lot of people care about this topics I made. Mm -hmm. I, I was doing stuff about like the, the, For the Formosan communist party doing stuff about like, like really obscure stuff. Mm -hmm. I did one about Genghis Khan, like all this other that people didn't really care about, but it did require me to get really tight on research because mm -hmm. There's no more group of pedantic people than history viewers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah. That's yeah, kind of crazy. I I do agree that you know there's not a lot of English language content when it comes to um I don't know like mid early twentieth century uh, history in Asia 
countries because and the content you do find it tends to be very academic right or like historical right and it's not really uh yeah like you said the they don't really talk about a lot about like the macro reasons they tend to talk uh, like kind of center around like the great man theory of history right like it's always this one guy who changed the course of the nation i think in singapore it's lee kuan yu in Mal- malaysia it's probably you could say mahathir like in terms of like really shaping the way malaysia is today and, yep. and in thailand it's the former king or something like that right and so it's kind of lost stories almost like uh like for example the example like chartered semiconductor right like there, there are people who know the story because like they probably worked there and things like that but then they they just it just never gets out there number one because maybe the country has a, a vested interest in not talking too much about it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and then uh n- number two it's we never had the internet until now right you know we weren't able to you know get gather uh a combined audience from across the world on these kind of these kind of topics. So I think yeah, it's this is the right medium for the right time. Yeah, and I think I would, have, you know, the, the charter semiconductor thing. I never would have gotten to where I was if it wasn't for the chip shortage. You know, like mm. it's one of those just really fortunate yeah. times that you know came about. I think when you are looking at stories of like like history, when you're talking about like history historians have a really bad tendency to either focus on something that's really abstract like you said like the mm-hmm. great men or like they just start talking about utter details that don't make sense like pottery like pottery shards like the daily life of this particular pottery shard maker like i think that's it's tough to strike that balance um and i couldn't do it in history like history video content for me if it's not in the con like if, it ha- if it's not like business related or stuff like that the the history content that i was really interested in early on in the channel just wasn't i have mm. to acknowledge that like when i acknowledge that it just wasn't interesting to other people that that was a tough admission to make mm. yeah yeah that's a bit hard right because you, you know these are the this is the content that you, that you like and you're hoping that everyone does but um in reality everyone's searching on youtube for video essays about the semiconductor crunch right and then um i think it, it was great for you because you are fairly knowledgeable about semiconductors and i think your best performing video has to do with semiconductors i think it's the india yeah. one yeah yeah and it's surprising because i'm not a semiconductor guy i have yeah. no industry experience in semiconductor. are you serious yeah i i my father was a chip designer okay but um, I, I, so I grew up seeing, like I said in one of my videos, I grew up watching him do that. Mm. I, I've ha- I have no experience in semiconductors. Uh, I was a, like I said, I, I was a tech marketer. Wait, correct me if I'm wrong. You grew up in Thailand, the Tainan area, right, as a child? No, so, I have, yeah. um, my mother is from Tainan, but I yeah. actually never visited Taiwan until I was in my late 20s. 20s. Right. And I actually never thought of Taiwan. You know, when you're sure. the, the the thing about the I think ABCs that grew up in in America is that they don't see the political differences between the the homeland countries, right? Right. Asian Americans in like some big school together, they're thinking about themselves, and they see themselves different as from like maybe white people, Latinos, or black people, right? Mm. Whereas you know. 
And then you'll see like Asian Americans and then you have the Vietnamese and the Chinese hanging out together. Historically, back home, the Chinese and the Vietnamese aren't, don't have great relations. Mm. For myself growing up, I saw myself as Chinese, like this t- okay. entire thing of Chinese. Chinese. I never saw a difference between myself as like a Taiwanese or like a mainland Chinese or a Hong mm. Konger, which my father right. is. So like it was a really interesting dynamic. So you notice that when I said that I was going to go to, to Asia, I picked four different cities to, to travel to, right? Yeah. That's basically because, partially because, like, I didn't see, it was just part of my, it was like my blind spot at the time. I didn't understand these differences until I actually moved to Asia. Mm. It's really fascinating. Yeah, you you mentioned, like, specifically, like, coincidentally, the four Asian tigers, right? Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's, it, it was a, it was really, it was really interesting experience, like, recruiting for those four those five areas like it was really yeah. really fun yeah and we we live in a world today where where you know china would be very happy that you had this very singular identity of like chinese right like everyone you know ethnically chinese like no matter where you are is like chinese they just try to like lump everyone together as a singaporean i really feel that because diplomatically we are, we are pretty good with china and like um uh, on paper, culturally, we are supposed to be very similar, but then, I, I mean, you, I'm sure you've met many Singaporeans, and you can see the extent of like, so-called Westernization that they've gone through, and you, it would be very remiss to say that they are culturally similar to, you know, a working millennial adult in China. Yeah, and so. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, but I think that's it's tough to say because like if you look at the older generation of yep. Singaporeans. They are very much tied to the home to the home country, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. they're very much tied to like. They're some of the loudest pro Chinese voices on my YouTube channel. Yeah. So like, I get the sense that like they're very. It, it's it's a generational thing almost. Yeah, yeah. And I think in the case of like the United States, it's like in America, it's like you're you're growing up seeing different things. I I don't say it's, it's an Asian American growing up experience that I think you need to have to be in an environment that cares about that sort of thing. And 2000s, late 1990s of that Asian American diaspora didn't care about it. They were worried about other things like um, affirmative action or like representation in movies. Hmm. Was it tough growing up um, uh, Asian American? Because I mean, all the the minorities in America, they suffer from you know, different problems. But um, I, I think Asian Americans are kind of, they're called like so-called the, the model minority. And then, you know, you're expected to be very, um, you know, a good citizen, basically. And then you have the pressure from your parents to do well in school because, you know, they're saving money to make sure you go to the top university, uh, partially to brag to their friends. And um, yeah, so th- th- it's almost like being in Asia where you are expected to kind of like conform to a set of behavior and also to fulfill the expectations of mm, your society. You know, there was, it's kind of tough to, to it's, I'm the wrong person to ask to because I can never, I had a really pleasant experience growing up. Hmm. I've, I've heard from a lot of Asian Americans who've had very difficult relationships with their family, with the homeland, with their identity, 
with school and all that like because like they like to talk about the stereotype but i was the stereotype i was the top performing class like student in my class all through college like i was um i was i did really well i had a pretty healthy relationship with my parents um we were very close and like you know we we're still close today and like i kind of had a pretty chill chill upbringing like we were upper middle class and it's almost i feel i feel in some ways sad or guilty about it when i speak to other people who've had difficult or more challenging childhoods because i felt like i felt like at that time i need to manufacture something mm. to tell people like oh my gosh like you know I, there was this one time but i've never <laughs> actually i've never to tell you the truth I've, I've never i've had a really smooth smooth life like i've and i can honestly say through my 30 plus years like i've never this sounds i'm gonna sound terrible like <laughs> i never had like a, I, I was never racially discriminated against you know, I've never had eggs thrown at me. I've never mm. been called like a difficult, like a bad name. Like people have always been very polite to me. Um, whites, blacks, Latinos alike. So like it was very, I can't, I speak from a privileged place. Mm. So like, of course I acknowledge all of that, but it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting thing. Well, how about when you came to Taiwan, right? And then um, you obviously face language barriers and uh you have the blessing that you look like a taiwanese person but you can't really speak their language and you might not immediately know a lot of the tacit etiquette that you're supposed to be able to know so how was that like the... hmm. in some ways it's uh kind of like being an asian american in america in that you know when you need to act overly polite you need to kind of just be very very nice and just nod your way through it mm. and i think taiwanese don't like conflict they're kind of they're japanese in that way so mm. like yeah they're not going to straight up tell you like we hate you go back to america they're gonna basically just sort of like all right that was a weirdo and just let that guy go on with his life and there's benefits there's ups and downs with that but like in general like i've had when I came to Taiwan, like my Chinese is pretty bad. It's like it's not good enough for business, but it's mm. functional. It's better at listening. So like I understand when people asking me for certain things or stuff like that. Mm. So I was pretty good with that. So I can't say I had like a very difficult experience transitioning. The only problem was like uh, signs. Um, <laughs> signs was tough. Mm. And if you leave the northern area, like you go to Tainan or Kaohsiung, that's that's a lot harder because they speak Thai, which is kind of a um, Taiwanese tone inflected dialect of Chinese, and I don't understand any of that. Like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, that is the hardest language I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, it's because of the the influence from um, basically Hokkien, Fujian, yeah, yeah, Hokkien or Fujian. I don't. Yeah, sorry, I forget. I forgot it's Fujian. You know? Yeah, but yeah, but because because in Singapore and uh, many parts of like. Um, you know the Chinese diaspora around Southeast Asia, it's like we all like have different accented Mandarin as a result of like the our ancestors speaking different Chinese languages, right? And so uh, I think Singaporeans can understand Taiwan quite well, because uh, I would say the maybe like 50, 60 percent of Singaporeans have like a Hokkien ancestor, uh, 
Fujian ancestry, right? And so um, our parents and our grandparents uh, speak in similar accents, not the same, but it's pretty similar, right? And then we also, I think prior to like 2010, like Chinese entertainment was basically Taiwanese entertainment, right? You watch <laughs> Taiwanese variety shows, um, you listen to, uh, you know, Jay Cho, uh, everyone else, you know, it's like that, that was like a complete monopoly of like um, Chinese pop culture, right? Chinese, yeah. I say now Chinese. Now it's all Korean. Yeah, I mean, yeah, now no, no, it's all Korean. Or like, uh, but I mean like China is like really like trying their best, right, to pump out, you know, like mu- musical superstars and in, in their own way. It's mostly catered to the domestic market. But uh, sometimes they do things like upload complete, um, you know, uh, like animated series onto YouTube, like Tencent does that. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah it's like it, because yeah, you know they're really good at like three D animation, right? Like they they just don't do two D in China. Yeah, huh. so that's bizarre. Yeah, so it's like ga- through games and animation and like some music, some music they're really trying their best. But yeah, I mean, okay. So the friends you hang out with now, like, uh, are they mostly like um, foreigners, or do you uh, are you close to any like Taiwanese? Most of the people I hang out with, if I hang out at all, because mm. um, I, I spend a lot of time working on the videos. My social life was a lot better before I started this YouTube channel. <laughs> um, I think um, generally I spend time with other ABCs. Um, mm. It's not that I don't want to, like I, I, I don't try to add them to my, my friend circle. I have a few. It's just that I communicate better with them. And I think Taiwanese have... They kind of enjoy, they have a style of life, which I'm not quite sure I, I jive with, right? Mm. Americans like to go outdoors. They like to do things. They like, they like to kind of, despite their, that they tend to be quite obese, they, t- they like to kind of run around and kind of be physical and kind of see the open air. And Taiwanese do that in some sorts, but they like to do it in like a more structured way. So like they'll, 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 they'll go camping or they'll go on like, these really, you know, bikey things, like bikes or stuff like that. I generally found myself kind of just, you know, doing a lot of like long walks, going to kind of, you know what? I'm going to take that all back. I have no idea why (laughs) I don't have so much Taiwanese friends in my life. (laughs) I guess I, you can only have so many people in your life. You really yeah. can. You really can't. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. I should have more. I feel bad. I feel bad. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, as a fellow content creator, if I can say that, but yeah, I can understand like uh, ed- editing really uh, takes up a lot of time. Uh, it's not that it's time that we don't enjoy, but uh, it's just that sometimes, you know, you, you, you just. You enjoy it? You enjoy it? <laughs> I hate editing. <laughs> I hate editing. I have to listen to my voice. Oh yeah, yeah. I had to I had to work so hard to get over that. Like I I think I was doing like I put out at least fifteen episodes before I decided. Okay, I don't hate my voice anymore. Yeah, it's it's just fine. It's just fine. Like no one's saying anything about it. But but man, like sometimes you also just want to get it done. Like like you've rec- you've done you've recorded and then like and it's like okay you got the voiceover you got the clips you got the pictures and it's like all right let's just you know. Get it out there. 
but you don't post things immediately, right? I don't. I um I have I have the early access. So I put up one video and I talked about I wanted to hit hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Um I talked about that. And then I it sat in early access for about so that's for the Patreon. So the Patreon the patrons can can watch it. And I sat in Patreon for about 2 months and at that time I had something like 75,000 subscribers. So by the time I it came out it actually it was I had like 130. Mm -mm. so congratulations yeah thank you thank you i you know i don't know i never know what to say to that um <laughs> the the like when it came out everyone commented like you already have a hundred thousand why do you say that that's the nature of the beast like it forces you to kind of make evergreen content and it forces mm. you to um just make content that you feel that is lasting and that's really mm. important to me yeah, I think that's what I try to do too. And as because we are one man operations, right? So, so there's no way you can do something like that's like weekly news or like, oh, you know, like last month, you know, this thing happened and like, I'm going to explain why. And it, it, when you put that, I assume the algor YouTube algorithm is not very kind to uh, that sort of uh, content, uh, like, unless you really have a already have a very large followership. But uh, yeah, I'll put the link to your Patreon and your newsletter to in the show notes. Yeah, hopefully That's very you. Kind. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully you get some uh, some followers from this. The five of you who are interested in uh, you know Asia, Asian history and semiconductors. <laughs> but you'd be surprised, like how many people like semi. Like I've I've heard from so many people, kind of telling me like how much they like like my channel inspired them to kind of learn electrical engineering or take this class or like really learn how to kind of be like this one kid took a semiconductor manufacturing and he's like 16 years old i was like i was like that's crazy oh, like you're yeah. in high school like that's i don't know i it weird it weirds me out to think that like stuff i'm doing is influencing people's entire lives because that's it's very unsettling to me very unsettling <laughs> Yeah, and you don't even like prescribe anything. You're just like talking about like stuff that's already happened, right? Yeah, so. Yeah, I'm not even like telling people like you should work in semiconductors. This is a great thing. I'm not. I'm not making stock picks. I'm not telling. I'm not giving financial advice. I'm just talking about something that I thought was really interesting, and that's turned out to be something that's really touched a lot of people. And um, I'm I'm grateful and freaked out at the same time. Yeah, I, I'm. I mean, I'm speaking to you, recording from my uh, M1 MacBook Air. Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, and I just like can't stop like raving about the battery life to my friends, right? And then I tell them it's like, oh, it's you know, it's a completely different architecture. It's it's not an Intel chip anymore. You know, it's 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 Apple's own thing, and it, the performance is great. And people are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's true. I actually have one as well. I have an M1 as well, and I switched to it because, like, I was just too tired of working with like the slow MacBook Air. And it's like it's it's so weird to me how you know maybe it's different for you because you record from you must do all your editing and recording from like your home. Yeah, I do my recording at home, but I do the like the I do the writing, I do the ideation mm. in cafes and stuff like that, right. surrounded by people, and it's like um, it's it's so much easier to have like a like a like me and my MacBook are like best friends because like, we, I'm always carrying it somewhere. 
<laughs> and I just have this like mental image of you like um, you know just like record speaking in your voice like in the middle of a cafe in English and people are like that's a gamma yeah but yeah um I wanted to talk a bit about semiconductors like I just wanted to get you know your thoughts on like where the world is going in terms of like semiconductor shortage and mm-hmm. The implications of you know maybe why like all these companies doing their own unique architecture and struggle for chip manufacturers to try and catch up. I think like for the first kind of fifty sixty years of kind of semiconductor industry, the pathway towards kind of getting better performance for the end user, so like a faster, you know, faster processor, faster chip, like all that, that came from like a very simple kind of concept. Um, that the idea that if you have more transistors in a certain area, you put more and more and more of them, not only is it going to perform better, like it's not only is it going to perform better, but it's also going to consume the same amount of power and you're going to have like, you know, costless gains. Costless in the sense that like you you pack more transistors in there and it works better. Like, voila. That stopped being the case, I would say, in kind of like the turn of the century where kind of lithography advances started to getting like really expensive, like lithography technology started really inflating. And mm. I think in probably around 20, you know, 20, 2007, 2012, you start getting situations where the old tricks stopped working. And that means that the industry had to catch up to that. And that means for kind of the general consumer, the general population, you're going to see different kind of form factors. The industry is going to start talking about different ways and approaches towards getting better performance. It doesn't mean that better performance is impossible. It Mm. means that it needs to come in a different package, right? So in the case of like AMD, you have an approach that they call chiplets. In the case of Apple, they're doing their, they're doing, they're, they're moving off of x86 and they're doing their ARM thing and they're integrating that very tightly with macOS. And like, you know, Nvidia has their GPU thing. So it's all this sort of kind of this vanishment of the way, you know, computers and processors are perceived as. And that's partly because, you know, the economics and the, the engineering has just gotten so much more difficult. Hmm. Yeah, I I watched a video by Tech Alter. I'm not sure if you follow that channel, but mm, um, he's great. Yeah, yeah, he's great, right? Then he he was just talking about like how the lithography actually works. Like, so for the listener, um, from what I've watched, part of printing, if you can say printing, or like getting the image of like a transistor onto a piece of silicon, involves you shooting a laser at liquid tin, and then to create plasma. And then that light reflects through like a series of lenses just to hit the silicon chip and like that's how you print it. And then uh, as you know the technology progresses like it gets smaller and smaller. Mm. Yeah, yeah, like we keep printing smaller and smaller chips, right? And it's like, um, I I, I think we have some performance gains but mostly efficiency gains nowadays. Like I, I think that's the name of the game, right? It's kind of a nuanced view, right? Yeah. Lithography started out as lasers or like, uh, the, first it was lamps, like mercury lamps. And then it kind of moved to lasers. And then the lasers got too difficult. Then you moved to kind of the extreme ultraviolet, which is 
kind of what you referred to where it kind of hits the the tin droplets um i think when it comes to the the gains you still get gains from performing transistor shrinks right hmm. the difference is that you know you also have to do other things to get those gains um for example if i were to say uh from up to, I would say, N22, so 22 nanometer, the 22 nanometer process generation, you use a certain mm -hmm. type of gate, which is like or 28, 28 or 22. It's like um, you use the planar gate, which is kind of looks like a dam. And then the it would just kind of let the electricity go in and to go through or not. And that's, mm -hmm. your, that's your on and off, your ones and zeros. And then um, that stopped working at a certain size. And... They, what they realized was that, okay, this is not being so effective in blocking or moving the or stopping the electricity to go through the, the yeah. current or whatever. So they switched that to a different type of gate, your FinFET gate. So that created kind of a better situation, but create a better situation without doing your shrink. So my point is more like saying it's like you can achieve better performance um, and it will be more efficient and it, and like power efficient, like the old days, but it's just, you gotta put a lot more effort into doing it. Mm, mm, yeah. And I assume because, you know, you just talked about two very different approaches and technologies to manufacturing chips. And so because of that, like the companies have to invest uh, billions, uh, manufacturers have to invest billions of dollars uh, every time they, you know, they want to create a new fab and a new process, right? Mm. Yeah, and and then you have countries that are just, especially the the big powers, they're just trying to, you know, make sure that the you know the the factories like, if they are not in Taiwan, they better be you know in my home turf, you know. Yeah, what do you think about that? In some ways, I don't think it's necessary because I think very important to semiconductor manufacturing is the idea of scale, right? You really a lot of this equipment is not economic to use unless it's being used literally to 100%, like your EUV machine that costs like $150 million, like you need to make that back by making millions of chips, like tens of millions of chips. You're not making that back if you are trying, if everyone's building equipment and simply because they want to put it in their own country. And I think um, governments like to look at, governments like, the idea of semi of like funding semiconductor manufacturing because it sounds like an advanced form of manufacturing, but I think mm. they need to really think about like what that actually means, and to know that like semiconductor the semiconductor industry is not one, it's not that fab. The the fab is the last thing you see, but it's actually kind of the tip of the iceberg, where like below that you have this titanic ecosystem of all these other things that need to work together, and when you kind of decide that you want to put a fab, you want to pay someone to put a fab at a certain place, um, you're going to have a situation where it's not economically feasible. Hmm. And uh, it's going to cause, like, it, you know, you'll have a lot of politicians with egg on their face. And, like, semiconductor manufacturing does not make jobs. Like, you have a lot of companies that, or a lot of, like, politicians, they, they say, they let's put subsidies so we can make jobs, right? Semiconductor manufacturing does not make jobs. Like mm -hmm. you're paying a lot of money to capital equipment, to really expensive PhDs, and it's like 150 people in this titanic chunk of land being put on this factory. 
So I think it's so when politicians talk about they want to put semiconductor manufacturing in and make it domestic and they want to do all that, I think they really need to think hard about kind of what that actually means for them because mm. um, they they might be talking out of a situation that's kind of against the principles they've run against, and you know it's not really filling the need they feel like they're they're hitting. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, people also like the idea of like yeah, what they perceive to be you know a high tech industry like coming onto their shores. Like they they think that uh, you know even if it's not me, like someone else in my country, you know, be like getting a really nice cushy job, probably getting a big fat bonus like in in these few years, right? But um, yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize how pervasive semiconductors are in our lives because we only imagine that. They are in our phones, our computers, and you know, at best, our cars, right? But they are also in our medical equipment, a lot of like military, military uh, equipment, in a lot of like IoT devices. Like every device is trying to be fucking IoT. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of a weird phase that we are in right now. And I was actually thinking about this before because, like, um, you know, TSMC recently said that they're going to kind of put that for invest 44 billion or whatever Mm. and i was thinking to myself like where is this demand coming from right like where Mm. is this like who who's buying like who who feels like they need to buy all these chips like you have and i think like you know it's it's maybe it's because i'm kind of a little old-fashioned but i feel like a lot of this stuff that's coming out doesn't feel like it's using the same amount of semiconductors that it is before uh or like they're not using as much semiconductors as I feel like they should. So I don't know. It's a, it's a kind of a weird sort of, it's a weird market situation. Um, and I would probably say it's pervasive, but the, the chip that's pervasive around us is like eight years old, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a, it's using a node that was done back in, you know, 2004. Yeah, yeah. This is a chip that costs like 10 cents why is this chip why do we need so much of it like Mm. i i don't know it's really weird it's really weird yeah i remember once i attended some networking event and then i I met this like japanese guy and then um like it was one of those like startup accelerator events and then uh i asked him like what he did he said he says oh this was i think 2018 right he said oh i work in a very boring industry i'm just we just make semiconductors and then, uh, yeah, I just can't, can't, can't stop thinking about that one interaction I had. And then, uh, like, fast forward th- three years later, you have news of, like, global foundries in Singapore. Like, you know, they're, they're, out, they're out of capacity manufacturing their 300 nanometer chips and, like, 180 mm-hmm. nanometer chips. And then, like, yeah. as someone who knows nothing, right, coming from a news article that talked about, like, uh, Intel still not being able to uh, manufacture 7 nanometer chips, right? It's yeah. like 300 sounds big and old right yeah Yeah. and because a lot of these chips don't they have different needs right Mm, yeah for example a military chip a lot of people want to put like a three nanometer fab in america because quote unquote the military right military Mm. doesn't use three nanometer chips military doesn't care for the best performance they want something like best reliability they want security they want sourcing security they want you know resilience to weather conditions or something like that Mm. and that usually you know that's like a 
that doesn't need to be three nanometers. So like goes back again to what I said about leading edge, like leading edge. Is that really what people want? Like leading edge doesn't mean what it used to be anymore. And like um, a lot of the chips that people use now, like that's in my the fan over there or in my mouse or something, they're, they're old and they yeah. don't need to be fast because they're looking for something else. Like they're looking for power, power savings or they're looking for just being cheap. And or like this is just a product that doesn't need no it doesn't need a three nanometer chip. Hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but at least prior to before all the tech companies decided they wanted to like, you know, um, design their own chips, these chips were not designed with specific use cases in mind. Uh, you mean like these in terms of like the ones that are for the tech companies? Like are you talking about CPUs or yeah, are you talking yeah. about kind of I think like like I said with like earlier it was like for the first long time longest time in the industry you only needed one type of chip right mm. and you only needed that type of chip because like you needed it to run certain types of things um I think over time as CPU performance as sort of kind of you know plateaued for the most part companies are looking for other ways to kind of improve mm. and like that's going to mean a lot of the very it's going to it's kind of like you're going to see a branching tree where whole bunches of different things are going to happen. Um, and it's, uh, it's interesting now that like Intel's been able to hold on to so much of that to some extent, hmm. I guess it's just because the computer industry is so large, but like it used to be that like, if you, you were buying a chip, you know, you're buying it. Um, I'm not going to say that. Like, it's, it's just, you're going to see a lot more form factors come out. And that's that's a challenge for Intel as it tries to continue growing its not its revenues, but its functions beyond, you know, desktop and server. And that's also a challenge for manufacturers like TSMC, right? Because if there are gonna there's gonna be a that like, you know, uh more types of chips to manufacture, then it's you know, they have to make sure they hit that scale you mentioned, right? Mm. Mm. I think like um, for I think actually TSMC is probably the wrong problem to talk about the problem because like, they're going to make money regardless because mm -hmm. they li they live on the leading edge right like they're like they That's have huge. the big customers that will pay them big bucks. I think you're, you're the big challenge is for like companies companies like Global Foundries right. Mm. Global Foundries is a company that left leading edge right. They let they no longer go to seven nanometers. They didn't want to move from ten nanometers to seven. And there's a big reason why, because 10 to 7 is just really hard. Um, it's basically, it's uneconomical to do without UV. And with UV, it's hard. It's, it's hard as it is. So they stopped moving to 10, and then they moved from 10 to 7. They stopped going to 7, and they decided to go, like, niche, right? I think the problem with niche is that you're going to have other competitors come in and take that margin. They want to mm -hmm. eat that margin, you know? Um, SMIC, uh, Silterra in Malaysia, you have all these different companies that are going to try to eat that margin. And like that's going to be really tough for all these other companies that are not TSMC because they're going to be incentivized to take on jobs that don't scale. And they're mm. going to be selling wafers at more than, at a lower cost, at a lower price than what they're, it's costing to make them. And it's rough. Mm. And that's why that industry grinds down like that's why so many foundries have dropped out 
of the industry so far. And that's why, like, you know, this industry is traditionally seen as like a pretty bad one, mm. like to invest in. Like it's basically since before COVID, this was one of the worst, like this was a capital destroyer. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's crazy because like as consumers, like these non-bleeding edge uh, companies are manufacturing chips that we use for you know a lot of like the consumer products that we use uh i, I i'm thinking about like um, what you said uh, in your video about cars many people underestimate you know the number of semiconductors that a car uses because they have this fundamental misconception that a car is a mechanical device and not a, yes. an electronic one yes yes and i think that's that's car is a kind of an example of like a product that started out mechanical and then very slowly became you know so like over time like that product became increasingly more had more semiconductors in it because it needed to perform a certain and meet certain thresholds right and i feel like that's a case for a lot of products that used to be mechanical and are now very like have a lot of circuits in them mm. like maybe your rice cooker, like your refrigerator, like a lot of products now have become heavily infiltrated by semiconductors. Or that's because adding them gives, you know, manufacturers a, like an added incentive to sell another widget. Hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, like, you know, like it makes our devices like um, it gives them kind of the ability to be, well, for lack of a better word, smarter, right? Like we are, that it's able to automate some functions because it has the the chip in it, right? Whereas um, our parents would probably be using like much more analog versions of those. Like they're no they're, they're no touch buttons or whatever. It's just it heats up your food, it chills your food, right? Uh, or yeah. like yeah, it just it just burns petrol and then you just adjust the gears yourself, right? It's and just, it's fundamentally less safe, right? Like if you hmm. look at like a car that mm. in my in the video I talked about automotive semiconductors I talked about car like airbags right mm. airbags run by or used to be purely mechanical before they implemented all these electronics into them and before that a lot of people died would still die despite the airbag because the airbag couldn't deploy fast enough so I think that's that's like a very kind of clear distinction between like if you want a safer product the manufacturer had to kind of go like another level. Those are the sort of market forces that have created a, a situation like this modern day world where you're surrounded by a lot of semiconductors. Yeah. So back to what we were talking about, like, you know, the obsession with uh, by governments of trying to get the bleeding edge while you have, well, let's call them the mid tier companies, like just trying to survive um, and you end up um, with much more resources to making something that's like pretty much overkill. Is that right to say? Yeah, it's like you have a lot. Yeah, that's why the a lot of the foundries are kind of like the smaller foundries. If you're not getting to scale, they're struggling to survive. And then they, you know, they, they go, maybe they'll go to the government to kind of get subsidies to kind of keep them to have them keep going. And then they, but they, but like, you know, the jobs that they're taking are not economical. Um, mm. It's unfortunate, but it's, you know, and it's not, a lot of these companies aren't competing on just like local area. They're competing on a global space. 
Yeah. So like it's you know the market's really tough for that industry. It is really tough. Mm. Like I I I wouldn't want to work there. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just th- thinking like um, I, I wonder if there's like any teenager. I mean, maybe a viewer of your channel, but then someone who's like reading like um you know a, like news articles and then he's thinking like hmm maybe I should like go take up like electrical engineering. Or his dad's telling him to go take up electrical engineering. And then he he graduates from and then gets his PhD. And then he, the world has too many uh, three nanometer chips, right? It's just can't get rid of them. It's like, oh, man. I think, I think the problem is that like software engineering, which I'm not quite sure is engineering. Mm. Um, software mm. programming is like, uh, it's like such a much more well-paying job. At least in America, it, mm. it certainly wasn't in Singapore. But like in in America, like you graduate and you do you learn how to program, you can get like your like like a good upper middle class job. Yeah, and you can't really do that in electrical engineering in you know in America. An- anywhere, anywhere, I think. I guess in Taiwan you can. Yeah, like, in Ta- like TSMC will hire you. It's like, <laughs> but like. <laughs> In, in America, like you're putting a lot more work in where like, you know, we have these code camps that teach someone how to use Ruby on Rails in like four weeks and then they can get, and then they have an $85,000 US dollar paying job. Like, you know, the value proposition is really clear here. Like it's, it's like, it's really weird how much, how effective kind of software is in the United States as like, as a job, as a kind of an occupation. So I won't blame, I, I understand why we don't have that type of talent in America right now. It doesn't pay. Mm. Yeah, um, but I, I think all over the world, like um, uh, I, I don't know when was the last time like you, you thought about uh, moving to Singapore for a job, but uh, I think in the last year and a half, like our version of the great resignation is basically a lot of people leaving consulting and mm-hmm. the the government to work in uh, tech jobs, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And I think what changed is that um, I think Facebook, uh, Meta, we call it Meta now, uh, decided to allocate more uh, resources uh, to their, their Asia-Pacific uh, office, which is in Singapore. And at the same time, we had like Chinese companies like uh, ByteDance and I think uh, some... I'm not sure if Tencent itself is setting up an office here, but they have a kind of a subsidiary here. So it's like a combination of uh, a lot of capital from both the US and China, just like pouring in. And like people are getting like 50% raises just to work for these companies. Yeah, it's crazy. crazy. When I I recruited, I I recruited as a programmer and I got a, uh, the offer they gave me was like 30,000 Singapore dollars a year. What? Yeah, thirty thousand, thirty-four thousand Singapore dollars a year. That's true. So be... I don't know how much monthly. I know uh, you guys use monthly, but in America they say yearly. I, okay, I would say that uh, like I I'm not sh- like maybe full stack programmer right in uh maybe like a tech firm you depending on which company or and how big it is you could be anything from like what we say like seven thousand to fifteen thousand like a month now. Yeah, that makes that yeah. makes more sense. Yeah, when you, when you say thirty thousand, yeah, when you say thirty thousand, yeah. I was like, are you missing a zero? You are missing like precisely one zero there. I think like yeah. that yeah, was... well, this was like this was like six years ago. So this was before 
see grab meta this is before all that i like you couldn't find a job if you kind of tried so hard like like yeah. it was it was a different world different world and it's crazy to me because like uh, it's how are we as a singaporean i think like how are we so late to the pivot of providing digital services because for a very long time like at least since the early 2000s like we are a provider of like you know corporate services right like financial services accounting and things like that right and these are things that uh roles that and functions that occur even in the early 2000s very digitally right mm. so yeah so there's like this like severe lack of talent tech talent now in singapore and i think that's why it's so expensive i mean people can't fly in that's another thing yeah and i think like also you know hong kong like hong kong got hong kong Hong Kong used to be like one of their biggest competitors for mm. kind of these companies that kind of want to straddle the East and West and yeah. that's no longer the case. And I think that's, you know, the, and also like you have these, this rise of kind of these local companies, right? In, if when, with previous situations, like Google, like, like I remember Facebook basically did all of their program, like everything emanated out of Silicon Valley. Right, mm, yeah. everything came out of Menlo Park, so they didn't. Need, the only people they needed to hire in, you know, Ireland or something like that was like the salespeople, right? Yeah. So like, that's changing. That's changed. Yeah, that's changed. And that's like, changed. Singapore's definitely benefited from that. Uh, yeah. If if I'm not wrong, like uh, you know, like Facebook, uh, for the the B two B side, they 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 just have like this like intertangling mess of services that just like stack on top of each other and i think some of them are, are being like programmed like and, and worked on in singapore yeah and uh also yeah the because of the unicorn companies in singapore everyone's been trying to or rather everyone's been telling everyone to go work for a tech tech company so what's the company that everyone that if you if you're someone if you met someone and they said i work here you'll be like "Ooh, like what's what what's this what's that company i mean it's still mostly um google or meta like i mean some people are like morally opposed to working for meta right but okay. uh but now i think like if you said you work for like bite dance or maybe sense time or something like that you know or grab less so and uh if uh, if you said you work for C, you know Shopee, like, mm-hmm. yeah, you, then everyone would just say, oh, 996, you know, 996. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah, so, 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 so that, that being the exception, it's like, yeah, any, you know, household name, I, I think it's become more attractive and also because it's become more common and people start hearing it all the time. And it's like, oh, maybe I should go work for Facebook, right? Meta, whatever. I don't think it's that easy to get into fit. I have, well, it wasn't for me. I, mm-hmm. I was definitely outside looking in. I was like, you needed a friend to get you in. Um, mm, yeah, I'm sure. I wouldn't work there now, but like back then I really wanted to because, you know, I had I had self-confidence issues. But I think it's, 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 it's a strange thing. It's very strange. Mm. So the conversation with John went on for quite some time. And in this episode, we talked a bit about semiconductors and business and I've split the rest of the conversation to another episode which will be more about Singapore's people its racial harmony policy as well as a bit about Singapore politics right 
So this episode is going to end here. So stay tuned for next week for the second part of this conversation. In the meantime, go check out John's channel on YouTube. That's Asianometry. And I'm going to link to a couple of videos in the show notes. And if you haven't already, please follow our Instagram at BTHPodSG or our Twitter at BTHPodcastSG. Right? Look for the dark blue logo. Feel free to slide into my DMs or just send me an angry tweet. Or join the Telegram group and send me a random comment. Uh, it always amuses me whenever I see one. So yeah, thanks for listening. See you next week.